0: Forward to networking with other OTs and find out what's going on in their areas.
1: I am delighted to see what's uh, you know going on um, in the UK
2: and
3: around the world as well. Hi and welcome to the RCOt podcast. I'm Dan Smith
2: and I'm Daniela Donohoe.
3: Today's episode was recorded at our 2019 annual conference, where we caught up with a few members who were nice enough to let us tag along with them to a few sessions. You'll be hearing from one of our student
4: members. I'm Ben Choi from the University of Brighton.
2: An occupational therapist who works with people with motor neurone disease.
1: My name's Suzanne Simpson, and um, I'm an occupational therapist at the Walton Centre, um, which is based in Liverpool.
3: A lecturer in occupational therapy.
5: Um, so I am Simone Coutier, and I am a lecturer at um, the University of Essex,
2: and a community based occupational therapist working in stroke is also an RCOT Health and Work Champion.
0: My name's Elizabeth Field, I'm an Occupational Therapist in Cornwall.
2: So Dan, it was your first time at conference, how did you find it?
3: Yeah, it was really interesting actually, it was a really great atmosphere. Um, I think everyone was quite excited to meet up with people from around the country, to meet up with people from different specialisms um, and there was a real buzz about everything. Um, I caught the opening plenary, so I heard the speech from a health and social care minister. And it was really great to hear how positive she was about occupational therapy.
2: Did you notice that was one topic that just kept coming up in all your conversations? Social
3: Social prescribing. Social prescribing.
0: Social prescribing. Social prescribing is what
3: everybody's talking about. Wow, so loads of interest in social prescribing. I attended session 29, which was Paul Cooper and Sarah Bedell's session on that topic, along with our first guest today, Suzanne Simpson.
1: Um, My name's Suzanne Simpson. Um, I'm an occupational therapist at the Walton Centre, which is based in Liverpool. And I've actually got... um, Recently moved into quite a new role, mm. so I'm funded by the MND Association, Motor Neurone um, Disease yes, Association. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I basically am looking at improving the psychological well-being of people living with MND, mm. and that's kind of brought me into the social prescribing world and all the developments around personalised care.
3: So um, obviously, the session that you just attended was on social prescribing, yeah. so I can see that's an interesting, uh, sort of an area of interest for you. But what were your initial thoughts on that session?
1: Very well done. It was obviously popular. We had, didn't only just fill the space of people mm. outside as well. So it's obviously a subject that a lot of OTs are interested in. Mm. Um, I think Paul really introduced sort of what the messages are from the Royal College um, and Sarah... Um, kindly told us the history of how Salford University got involved in social prescribing which is quite interesting okay. um, and certainly I think she posed a few questions uh, to the audience I think especially the one around the fact that OTs don't own occupation right. I was waiting for a few gasps in the audience <laughs> um, because when it comes to social prescribing I think I initially When it was around, when it was first mentioned, I was one of those OTs that, how dare they? Mm. Occupational therapy, that's occupational therapy. Mm. But actually in the role I'm doing now, my view of social prescribing has completely changed and I'm a real advocate for it.
2: It's interesting to hear Suzanne address that. Um, I think we know from speaking to members and from conversations on social that a lot of occupational therapists do feel that way. We asked RCOT's Paul Cooper, of our professional advisors about this
6: so to give social prescribing some context i'd like to talk around personalized care this is now coming into policy in all four nations around choice and control in health and social care Um, we know that that 10 percent of what determines our health and well-being is actually not around health care and we know that what matters to someone is important and we should be focusing on on people's strengths and what matters to people rather than what's the matter with people. Um, under this banner is, is where social prescribing is coming. Um, and there's, there's certainly a lot of press around this uh, around in England at the moment around um, the long-term plan and link workers. But the term social prescribing has certainly been around for, for a while and, and we at the Royal College have been talking about it now for several years. Um, some I've expressed concern that social prescribing is is a risk to our profession. Um, I would say it's more of an opportunity, really. This is um, part of our practice and always has been, but by saying we're social prescribers alone, I think we're underselling our education, our experience and our evidence base. And we can offer something genuinely unique and different to social prescribing. This is an agenda that we shouldn't hope to own and we can't hope to own but we can help to contribute to its success. We can't afford to let this opportunity pass for our profession, but more importantly, for the people that we work with. This is something that occupational therapists can really contribute to my success of. So please get in touch and let me know.
3: So as Paul mentioned he'd love to get your thoughts on social prescribing especially if you've got any experience in this area or if you're undertaking any research. So drop him a line please at paul.cooper at rcot.co.uk
2: Simone also felt that this presents an opportunity for occupational therapists to proactively get involved and to promote the value of OT. And
5: I think it's been a massive wake-up call um, for us as OTs to really you know get off our butts and go out there and tell people what we do but I think we also need to be having very um, important conversations now in its early phases, about how to reclaim that and how to get into those GP practices and make job roles for ourselves in there. I mean GPs are quite open to us being there and I think with the whole movement towards individual individualised budgets and personal budgets that the doors have already been opened um, for us to go and and be much more involved in GP practices and consortiums.
3: I spoke to Suzanne about what she'll be doing on a practical level to progress her work in this area.
1: It's made me want to connect more with other ot's so within that session there was an ot behind me who was talking about gp hubs and Mm -hmm. how gps are really getting what occupational therapists do and are wanting to roll that out Mm -hmm. so i think what i've taken away from it is is i'm not the only one i think um amanda peacock was another ot who's spoken today about social prescribing And she was saying the same, you kind of feel like you're the only ones, but actually there's lots of pockets of OTs that are doing it or trying to get involved with it. So I think what I've taken away is to reach out a little bit more Mm -hmm. and find out more about what OTs are doing out there. So there was a lot
2: of interest in new and emerging areas of practice. I joined Simone Cotier for an occupation station which was all about
5: occupation as protest. So I am Simone Coutier and I am a lecturer at um, the University of Essex. Um, It was really nice to see that on the the schedule actually on the program because um, I haven't seen anything like that on um, the program before and it it was really nice to be there and to be thinking, um, particularly I have I'm still thinking about the the stuff that we looked at at um, the WUFIC conference last year and how powerful that was and really thinking about how we can include a lot of that kind of radical thinking into um, both teaching occupational therapy and clinical practice. So um, it was really nice to just sort of sit there and listen to this kind of discussion about protest in different ways, but how, you know, we're being given permission to do it really, and well, not that we need permission, but actually, OTs are quite a passive lot generally, <laughs> but actually, we have these real, you know, kind of passionate lives and creative lives, and we should be doing more with that. Yeah. I'm very passionate about environmental justice, linking with occupational justice, and that, that, that kind of, you know, by promoting the th- those three—just the, the social justice, occupational justice, and environmental justice—are really part of our job, and we actually should be doing all three. I mean that we're very good at occupational justice, and that we can do that because that's the tools of our trade. But um, we cannot have occupation or life without, in, you know, the kind of environmental aspect of it. And I and I really feel that I'd like to be looking much more at how occupational therapists can push. Um, in all the organisations that we work in, to um, be, be challenging um, the kind of waste that, that there is in, in, um, in kind of big organisations, um, and, and be thinking about building environmental thinking into mm-hmm. all of our practice, mm-hmm. um, into our teaching. Um, so that's one thing that I'd like to be thinking more about. And then also, on um, much more of a person Orientated level, looking at so I work with students. I don't really see um, sort of service users anymore. But from um, working with students and kind of understanding the challenges that they have and um, and the passions that they have, and and then trying to work collaboratively with them, collaboratively with them, because I think again that collective voice mm-hmm. is much stronger than students saying one thing, and. Um, being kind of a lone voice in the crowd and us thinking about how we can make protest um, constructive and transformative and peaceful and um, but make it there and make it relevant.
3: And on the subject of students and future practice I spent some time chatting to one of our student delegates about how he's feeling about the future of the profession.
4: I'm Ben Choi from the University of Brighton and I am almost finished i've almost finished my master's in occupational therapy i think we're already setting quite a positive future to be honest with you um i believe we're one of the few professions that aren't severely affected by the whole robotics um taking over profession side of stuff interesting Um, so i think we're already in a fairly good position going forward Mm. i think we need to be more assertive in mdt teams from my experiences on placement just because like i said from my experience i've seen that's not the case so much mm. i think naturally a lot of occupational therapists we kind of sit back a little bit and sometimes are, are happy for others to take the lead but i think maybe a bit more assertiveness and a bit more leadership and more of a push on that side of stuff mm. um i think would benefit us massively as refresh profession.
2: It's interesting, isn't it? That point about leadership keeps coming up. Um, we actually did a whole podcast on it recently. It definitely feels like occupational therapists are ready and wanting to lead. and That's something that Suzanne Rastrick encouraged in her opening plenary.
3: You have a vital role to play in the unfolding destiny of the world, dear occupational therapists. What will it be for you? I want to introduce you now to my last AHP voice. Tom Welton. Tom is a diagnostic radiographer from Lancashire, whose lived experience included being diagnosed with sudden death syndrome at the age of 20. And I want to leave you, if I may, with a particular thought of Tom's, which to me epitomises leadership and how I want you to respond to what I've said this morning. The future is now. We are it, no one else, just you. Don't wait for anyone else to do it. So, dear occupational therapists, get going, please. Thank you. Back to Suzanne Simpson here.
1: Picking up on what Suzanne talked about this morning, and I'm a big believer in this now, is around, I think, for the profession, it's now about leadership, Mm. and it's about OTs standing up, and shouting more and, and selling ourselves we're not good at it and I know mm-hmm. I'm not good at it I get in a room and I get whole imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. I, I think what am I doing here but actually it's about driving everything forward and taking people with you mm-hmm. um, Suzanne really hit the nail on the head it's about nurturing others mm-hmm. and what I really love about being an OT and now being in a, in a role as a band 7 is I want to hopefully infect other people in that drive and Uh that that come on we're ot's we can do anything Mm. and i i am a i probably have got rose tinted glasses and i probably do think pie in the sky ideas but i think unless i really aim for the ideal Mm. Then what i striving for. I think for the profession, now is the time to lead. You know, everybody's saying it, everybody's talking our language. So let's lead, let's show people how it's done and take them with us right. and support them to do it as well.
2: So while we're talking about leadership, I met up with one of our COT's health and work champions to attend Genevieve's session on the project. We caught up by phone after conference to have a chat about this.
0: My name's Elizabeth Field. I'm an occupational therapist in Cornwall. I work with the Stroke and Neurology Therapy Service. And in addition to my therapy role, I've also taken on the volunteer role as a health and work champion. The um, project, if people aren't aware of it, it's um, led by Jen Smythe from the RCOT. And it's all about good work for good health and supporting our colleagues in healthcare and also now in social care to be aware of the relationship between good work and good health and to be aware of the risks of someone being either in unhelpful unhealthy work or of struggling and maybe becoming out of work.
2: Elizabeth shared some of her thoughts on Jen's session with me
0: Oh, I was I was thrilled. I was thrilled that it was so well supported. Um, it was great to hear. I mean, there was one person who spoke out who's working with young people with dementia, specifically trying to help them back into work or to remain in their jobs. It was great to hear from that person. I met Jen only last week in cornwall um and even just coming to that extra session in the conference i still once again learned new things um i i found out that you know we're now far more explicitly involving our colleagues in social care which when i was first involved with the project we were far more sort of healthcare focused and now we're just embracing the whole the whole community of people who can get on board with this project and support this agenda of good work for good health um, yeah and and also um, just hearing about the opportunities for local leadership for occupational therapists mm. to lead in this area in their you know in their local services or in their local organizations and the career development opportunities that are coming out of this this project and and the way people are developing it locally and that was very uplifting as well for the project but for occupational therapy
2: elizabeth explained how the health and work champions role has given her a tangible way to lead within her trust
0: just speaking informally to people who've who've been involved with the project it has raised their profile it has given a specific identity um, that that then has leverage. I think once you've got um, a profile and a name for, and some visibility for leading in one area, then people recognise the skills and want to hand you other pieces of work and say, what can you do with this?
3: So it's been a really packed couple of days, but we've seen some key themes coming out of our conversations, definitely social prescribing and an interest in new ways of working.
2: And, of course, leadership. Conference ended with some words from RCOT's
1: Chief Executive, Julia Scott. I do wonder if it's time for us to declare, I'm an occupational therapist with a bit more confidence, an assertion, and assume that people will know something of what we do. A little confidence can go a long way. Is it time we all spent some time creating five or six I am statements? Is it time we worked on being more assertive about what we do? Dictionary.com defines an assertion as a positive statement or declaration without support or reason. I can live with that, and I urge you to try it.
3: So thanks to everyone who took part in today's episode, especially our interviewees, Ben Choi, Simone Cotier, Elizabeth Field and Suzanne Simpson. If you've got any thoughts on the topics we discussed or any ideas for what you'd like to hear in upcoming episodes, you can contact us on any of our social channels using the hashtag #RCOTPodcast. We're taking a break from conference next year to conduct a review. Remember to give your feedback at rcot.co.uk forward slash feedback. That's forward slash feedback.
6: I enjoyed Alice Hortop's talk um, because she made me think about the importance of solitary activity and why that sometimes might be really helpful for people rather than encouraging them to socialise more.
1: For me, the best bit has actually been meeting people, meeting colleagues that I know from online or that I know the work from um, research or articles. And just that networking and connection with other OTs has been the best part of the conference for me.